yeah, welcome, Kevin. Uh, it's Thank a you. Real pleasure having you here. Um, to everybody who doesn't know Kevin or isn't aware of his work, um, Kevin is an amazing artist um, in many formats, um, particularly known for the digital realm and um, he's done a lot of work in, in visual effects, worked on some amazing movies and uh, has been a, a visual effects artist and visual effects supervisor for many years, um, working on some incredible movies that you all know of, um, things like uh, Beautiful Mind and uh, What Dreams May Come, where he won uh, an Academy Award for his work on that. And uh, yeah, there's many, many more things to say about you, Kevin. I know that uh, lately you've been really, really interested in VR and uh, making some incredible artwork in there, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, so yeah, that said, uh, welcome today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, um, to start this off, I guess uh, I'd love to, I'd love to hear about kind of the, the beginning of the journey for you uh, a little bit and kind of what what got you interested into um, uh, digital visual effects, um, digital graphics, and um, what kind of got you into that. I know that you you're a, you're an artist, a true artist, and you come from that that world, um, but how you kind of transitioned into the digital world? Well, um, it, it's a long story, <laughs> uh, but uh, my uh, my folks were were artists in the film industry. They worked for Disney. Uh, my dad was a, a background painter and a story man and stuff. And uh, my mother was uh, one of the pioneers of ink and paint, and uh, also the original model for Tinkerbell. Uh, so I am the son of Tinkerbell, and uh, and uh, so I just I grew up grew up around art and art kind of in a a technological context of like filmmaking and animation and stop motion and all of these ideas uh, of making art with technology and so um, uh, it was always my my dream even as a very small child to be able to take that further somehow and. And, uh, you know, I loved the, the rides at Disneyland where you had the, you know, the projection around you 360 degrees and, and those ideas. And so, uh, and that's how uh, it was for me in my imagination. Um, you know, I was, I was actually there. I wasn't looking at a picture of my imagination. I was immersed in it. So I think virtual reality was an idea that, uh, had, uh, you know, was, deeply in my mind long before anyone had coined the phrase or had, had come up with the technology. Uh, I, I got into, you know, I did traditional art. I went to art school. I worked in the film industry uh, for many years uh, doing traditional art, animation, stop motion, scenic painting, uh, concept art, matte paintings, miniatures, um, you know, all, all making props, sculpting, whatever, whatever was needed. Uh, the kind of the uh, journeyman artist and the thing I'd, I'd work on whatever they, they needed to be done. Uh, and I got into computers in the eighties for doing music. I also uh, play music and we had a band in the eighties and I was real interested in synthesizers and, and so on. So I wanted to uh, experiment with uh, uh, sequencing and, and, and using computers for that process. 
And so, but then it was like, well, you could do some crude graphics on it. I got an Atari and then, uh, and then later an Amiga. And I started uh, exploring uh, computer graphics and I was just all in. It was like, oh man, this is what I want to do. It's, it's not very good yet, but it's, it's getting better. And they already had better stuff. It was just, you know, those computers cost lots of money and, and yeah. so on. So, but it was there and uh, I just uh, kept working on it. And then I kind of noticed, um, I was like, hey, um, I could do some of the work I'm doing in visual effects with my computer. And it occurred to me like, wow, this would be perfect for doing visual effects. And this was before visual effects was, was using uh, digital work, really. There'd been a few things, you know, there'd been the, the last Starfighter and whatnot was around that time. But uh, I was just kind of in the right place at the right time. I had traditional visual effects experience and uh, connections. And I was, had been doing computer graphics as well. And so I was able to help kind of introduce and, and uh, pioneer the use of computer graphics in visual effects. And it was really just, I, I kind of paddled a little bit and caught a wave and it was a, it made for a, a wonderful career. And uh, so I, I kept doing that. I kept thinking, uh, you know, I kept making my art, digital art on the side of fine art, abstract art and whatnot. Um, and I was, I was rather obstinate about it. Even when we would have 14 hour days, I would stay up that much later to work on my own renders and whatnot. Uh, and then, you know, around 2010 or so, it seemed like the people were starting to talk about the VR thing again. And by 2014, uh, you know, I had a prototype headset I was, I was making stuff for. So yeah, I just, I, I got, it was like, well, I've, this, I've waited for this for 30 years, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing this now. Right. Finally, the world caught up with your idea. Yeah. And there is actually a little uh, seed story to the thing, <clears throat> excuse me, which is um, when I was four years old, we moved to a little house in, in West Los Angeles and there were three agave plants in the backyard, these big you know, kind of spiky, giant blue um, leaved things. And I'd never seen anything like them. And they, uh, they just looked like aliens to me. And I would just sit and stare at them and uh, imagine all manner of things. And so I, I imagined that they were speaking to me uh, telepathically. And they had these kind of gruff voices. And, and they told me that they were uh, the ancient elders from the distant future. And, and then they transported me uh, to just incredible uh, visions of, of other worlds and other futures and, and just like this crazy journey, um, which, uh, and they talked to me and told me all kinds of things, much of which I had no idea what they were talking about. But they, uh, they said that they were, uh, they were basically recruiting me to help them uh, to uh, so, or, so that one, I would help to create their ancestors, uh, that one day I would help to create their ancestors. And they were reaching back through time to recruit me to ensure their own existence. And wow. uh, so that's my story. That's um, when you were four. four years. That's when I was four, yes. <clears throat> but it, it, the big thing about it was that it really gave me this, this kind of this idea of what if you could transport people into an immersive experience somehow because clearly that's what I was experiencing in, in my imagination with these, uh, with these creatures. 
And uh, whether it's imagination or I really was transported uh, is um, undetermined at this at this time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's kind of hard to prove kind of stuff. But yeah. Uh, but lots to the to the world that's a mystery still that we can't explain. So. Yes. Well, I. Uh, I have a thing. They seem to think I have a thing called a hyperphantasia. I had never heard of it till just a few years ago, but um, it's uh, apparently, you know, some people uh, who are aphantasic don't have a mind's eye. They can't picture things in their mind. Whereas people with hyperphantasia have a very vivid mind's eye and can imagine things very vividly. So um, uh, anyway, I think that might contribute to my, uh, my visions and vivid imagination. Right. That explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I, I um, you know, thinking about my own journey into it, I was kind of coming from the more technical side of things, but um, <clears throat> there, there was a moment for me the same, and it was actually watching Jurassic Park, which I'm sure it is for lots of visual effects artists. But that, that moment for me made me realize what it was that I wanted to do. And lots of moments before that, but um, I think it's really interesting for some of the people that might be watching this or, or listening um, just to hear about, you know, your journey into it and how you, um... okay, sure. Um, yeah, just to hear like how you you got into uh, graphics, how what you were inspired by um, and what your journey was like on the way. Because I know a lot, of, a lot of people are already in the industry, already exploring it. Um, and but many aren't, and many are kind of thinking about how to go about that process and how um, what they might be able to do to explore it. And I think even for some of the people that are in the industry, trying, um, especially after a while of making art for other people, um, trying to keep that kind of spirit alive, um, I think is really really important. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting to hear you talking about you're doing your own work always and, and prioritizing that even with the intense demands of productions yeah i think for me it was a kind of a um a a coping mechanism and a and a survival thing in that um i think when you have a you know a creative spirit whatever like you kind of got to do it it's it's uh you know it just it keeps you sane without it i think uh i i would i just seem to um uh, not do well, I would, I would start to become uh, unhappy. So I just found it was just better for me, even if it was just a few hours or an hour at night. Um, if I just had my own thing to keep working on, it, it kept me going. Because it is, as, as an artist, if you, you know, uh, an artist means a lot of different things. But for me, in this context, I kind of mean the kind of person who has a, uh, you know, a, 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 a personal vision of, of making art, a personal art an art practice um and i certainly um you know am grateful to have had such a wonderful career doing commercial art uh, for visual effects and i enjoyed it a great deal and i was very fortunate to be able to actually kind of have both both things inform each other so you know i'd be working on my own things at home and then a, a visual effects challenge would come up and i'd go hey i can apply this to the visual effects Likewise, in doing visual effects, I'd come up with things to solve a visual effects problem. They like, 
wow, I can use that in my art and make something cool with that. And there's, there's like lots of examples of, uh, of that in my work. Um, you know, the opening of the, uh, of the, the Grinch that stole Christmas, so you fly into a snowflake and you see these crazy crystalline caverns and mountains and so on. And, uh, and that was some of the real early stuff I, I was doing with isosurfaces and isofunctions. And I just kind of ported it over. I was like, okay, well, let's, let me see if I can shoehorn my work into this movie I'm working on. And, uh, and it worked. It got in the and thing. You got away with it. <laughs> I got away with it. It was really cool, too, because I, like, I pitched the whole concept for the opening sequence. And they went, wow, that sounds great. Yeah, do that. So um, that was a kind of a, a way to get. And it was, you know, it was also cool because it was an idea that I had gotten from a Dr. Seuss thing, a different Dr. Seuss book. But you know, and Horton hears a who or whatever. It was like they they live on a speck of dust or something. And I thought, what if the whole thing was inside a snowflake? And anyway, uh, it was a wow. fun, fun opportunity. And, you know, just uh, there have been other cases where uh, similar things, um, you know, I was really into L systems and artificial life. And so when it came time to do the tree for what dreams may come, uh, I was able to go, hey, what if we grew the tree instead of, you know, hand modeling it? And, uh, and so it was like that became the first use of, of artificial life or L systems in a movie. And then I, you know, just then ported that over and did the same, same thing for the opening of Fight Club, the fly through in the human brain uh, was also the, that was all grown. It was grown using uh, artificial life rather than, than being hand modeled. Wow, that's amazing. And were, were you responsible for um, helping to come up with some of the technology as well as I'm sure it was a combination of lots of, of techniques. Um, yes. Uh, for the, uh, for both of those initially, uh, I was very, I had the luxury of being on the project for uh, quite some time by myself. Um, so I kind of developed and prototyped a lot of the stuff and worked out, some things uh, in advance. Uh, and then when it came time to, to do it in production and did high res and everything, then, uh, you know, I had, of course, the benefit of a, of a team of, uh, of um, you know, brilliant artists uh, and technicians. Amazing. Amazing to have that opportunity to have time to, to do research. I know often that that's something that you don't get the luxury of having and you have to yeah. into it. Yeah, it was it was kind of an amazing thing because um, I literally on Fight Club, I got to do brain research for like a year. Wow. And and I was just like doing research and stuff and and, you know, coming up with concepts and, and things. And, um, you know, Fincher was. David Fincher, the director, was really bent on it being anatomically correct and really realistic and so on. And uh, there really had, that really hadn't been done at the time. So um, I got involved with all these different neuroscientists and, and uh, it, was, it was really fun. And I, as I was reading through the stuff and everything, I, 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 was, you know, I was into it for more than just the project. It was really, I was trying to, you know, like, how can I use this? How can I develop intelligent artificial life? And it was really great to be learning not just about computational neuroscience, but about biological neuroscience provided a really great insights and perspective into um, being able to kind of, you know, engineer 
artificial uh, life and intelligence. And it was a weird coincidence. Um, uh, the publicity guy at, at Digital Domain, Bob Hoffman, connected me to this incredible opportunity to be the keynote speaker at the uh, inauguration of the International Brain Mapping Project. Uh, right. uh, you know, many years ago, back in the 90s, and they, they were just beginning this uh, International Brain Mapping Project. And it coincided with the annual you know, International Neuroscience Conference. And I was gonna be the keynote speaker and uh, which was kind of inappropriate in a way, but that was the <laughs> idea behind it. You know, the 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 guy who was running it, uh, uh, Dr. John Maziota, he he thought it'd be cool. He liked to have keynote speakers who weren't neuroscientists or who were from another field that would provide something you know different or unique. And um, and because I was working on Fight Club at the time, it had this kind of tie-in. But mainly, they were interested in computer graphics. And what was coming down the pike, the technology we were developing for movies that they would, you know, soon be getting for visualization in, in, in science. And um, so I was able to show some of the, the early renders of, uh, of Fight Club and, the, and talk about the brain and how I grew it. And, and then I couldn't help it. I had the top neuroscientists in the world there as a captive audience. And I had uh, somehow arrogantly decided that I had made some, uh, some discovered some ideas, some concepts that I hadn't seen in any of the, the literature I'd been reading, any of the textbooks and stuff. And so I kind of blew through the visual effects talk and, and then presented my, my theories on neurotypology and, and development. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, a, it changed my life. It was a really cool wow. thing. Um, there were certainly a few people rolling their eyes and, you know, a little bit, um, I don't know, you know, you know, God, the nerve of this guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it was, you know, mostly really well received and, and I think had an impact uh, in general uh, to the neuroscience community. I had some some different perspectives on on that. So ever since then, I've been very engaged and involved with the, the neuroscience community. Wow. And it stemmed from that. That's what that's the. The, the movie that encouraged you to go off on that on that journey. Yeah, and I, I like I said, I'd been into artificial life and and you know neural networks and everything before that, but um, that one really gave me an opportunity to to focus on it and and, and provided me with the, all this insight because I was kind of forced to shift my focus from computational neural networks to biological ones, and and learned like wait, there's a lot we can learn here. Um, Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I can imagine that being kind of exciting and nerve-wracking to do that that talk, pun intended. Um, yes. But amazing, amazing you know, where uh, that kind of courage, that moment of courage took you, and ha having the curiosity and the courage to push into that, you know, it seemed like it opened so many doors for you. Yeah, it was really great. I, I, I admit I was quite naive and arrogant to do that <laughs> but um, we have to be a bit uh, yeah i suppose so i really did, had no idea what was you know what was going on but it was um it was really fun i made a lot of a lot of good you know lifelong friends at that at that conference and um because of that talk so um they later i i i would they would invite me back to speak uh, after that again uh, a couple times and um 
at one of them, they presented me with an honorary uh, neuroscience thing with a hologram plaque and everything. So I'm an honorary wow. neuroscientist now. Wow. <laughs> How cool. From the, you know, UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine. So it's, you know. It's legit. Yeah. Well, wow. it, it is honorary. <laughs> I'm not permitted to perform any kind of surgery. They made that very clear. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to make sure I knew that this, this did not make me an actual medical doctor. <laughs> right. Make sure yeah, I understood doctor. the difference between neuroscientist and neurologist. They're very different things. <laughs> right. That's, that's really, really amazing. You know, I, I think um, for me, computer graphics has been an in, incredible thing in itself, but also something in, in a similar way to that, that because of all the things that you have to replicate, you end up having to understand them a lot to be able yeah. to replicate them. It's, it's an incredible career in that way, I think. Isn't it true? Like I have learned about so many things that I never would have learned about uh, if it weren't for some assignment in visual effects. And, right. and so many interesting things. And it's just broadened my perspective as an artist in so many ways, you know, the neuroscience thing and the, you know, uh, you know, just physics itself, like just really understanding physics, the physics of light, like, you know, to the degree that you need to, to do computer graphics, man, that makes you a great painter, like, you know, or whatever. It's like you, to know those things is really useful uh, in life. Um, and also yeah. in, in, you know, any art practice. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing how those two things can kind of draw together in moments and become the same thing. Um, I feel lucky myself to have had moments like that too. And uh, it's, those are some of my favorite times where, where your, your life and your work don't feel like two different things. Yeah, well, also the, the community itself, um, to be just steeped in an environment that is filled with the, the smartest, most brilliant people, programmers and artists and, and, and uh, just really brilliant, uh, you know, freakishly talented people um, is uh, the, the greatest form of education you, you can get. It just, I learned so much uh, beyond my normal means i think by being exposed to really really smart people and just having them at my fingertips well how does this work and well why is that and you know like you work on a movie like apollo 13 and you know you're working with nasa people and stuff and it's like you can ask all the questions and they you know they're so kind and patient and pretty soon you you know all kinds of stuff about space and uh you know like likewise i had an incredible opportunity a few years back i think 2011 uh cern um the big uh you know particle accelerator in yeah. uh in europe they invited me and my son uh to come out and consult because uh, they were you know they had all these amazing discoveries and they had uh not done real well with their attempts at visualization and and so they wanted to know how can we visualize things and it was just like the most amazing intense crash course in particle physics uh and it was so much fun and as it happened like we happened to be there when they discovered the higgs boson like we wow. were there like i was in a meeting with the top you know physicists at, at cern and one guy was late and he came in and was like we got it like wow. and 
Yeah, it was wild. And within like 24 hours, the place was just a huge media circus. All the scientists okay. in the world came there and it was like it transformed our, our you know, rather um, uh, sort of placid, uh, you know, visit into this just exciting frenzy of activity. And uh, and it was just it was the most fun. It was incredible. Wow, that's so cool. Actually, uh, Jackie has a little history with CERN too. She's she's been there. Her her dad um, worked there for a, was it uh, two years? A year. a year. Yeah, he got uh, posted over. He was working in the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Oh, uh huh. Oh, wow. Physicist, particle physicist, and got posted out there for a year to go and go and help them out for a bit. I think oh. they had a, a kind of daddy daughter day or something, and she. Got to go check it out. Oh, how cool! Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Um, so, did, did the um, the I guess the exploration of of understanding the brain and understanding um, learning and how brains learn, how the computers can learn, um, how how has that affected your your own personal work? Um, in, well. Uh, for me, the big thing from the beginning, I think I, I you know, I've thought about it a lot because you, you, you have to be able to, you know, people want you to be able to talk about your work. It's like, why do you make your work? And, you know, for a long time, it's like, I don't know. I, I have to. I, I don't know why. <laughs> but in, in analyzing it, uh, I really kind of, it came down to one phenomenon, which is that I grew up loving art. And, and loving, you know, all kinds of art from cartoons and comic books to, you know, Michelangelo and Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci and, and Picasso. You know, I just loved art. My parents loved art and taught me to love art. And I loved how it made me, it could make me feel. And I just loved the experience of awe, of just like, oh, my God, look at that. And also with nature. I love nature. My, we would, you know, we, my folks had a little boat and we'd go out into the sea and see just incredible sights and, and, and snorkel and everything. And it's just like, Oh my God, look at that. Look, how can that be? And I, I just was fascinated with that experience. So all my life I've been interested in what is that? What's happening when I feel that way? And what is it that makes other people feel that way? And so my interest in neuroscience really kind of uh, began with that of, you know, even before I was interested in, neural networks or artificial intelligence, uh, even in the very early days of visual effects, I was interested in how does the brain process information? What order is it processed in? What's the most important elements? And, you know, what, what are the priorities in terms of how we process it? And what, what makes it affect us emotionally? And what makes it move us and, and inspire that, that uh, incredible um, emotion of awe? And so the, I think that's where I come from with my work, I'm always just striving to, you know, uh, be able to communicate and share that experience of awe um, with other people, be able to have them put on my headset and go into my world and meet my creatures and just be uh, completely engaged uh, to such an extent that the world goes away, the human condition is gone, um, and they, they, they're forced to... Uh, basically accommodate a new model of reality. And that's really the most powerful thing about awe, which is a whole science now. It's like a whole field in and of itself, the science of awe. But um, 
what one of the big things it does is that it, it, it inspires this process of accommodation whereby we, we, you know, we take in some information that generates awe, which basically means this, this experience is beyond my, my model of reality. This is uh, this exceeds my, my understanding of things. And so uh, you're forced to kind of go, okay, well, I have to re, I have to recalibrate. I have to re rebuild my model with this new incorporating this new information. And um, that's, you know, a big part of um, the, the beauty of it is that it, it can actually change people. It can actually move them to improve and grow and learn. And so I just love that about it. I think for a long time, I just wanted to make things that, you know, you know, look cool and we're bitching. Uh, but then you find out, wow, that's actually really good for you. You know, it's it's great. Brings about psychological well-being. It's even physically like uh, really healthy and and uh, therapeutic. Uh, you know, we generate in a state of awe. We generate anti-inflammatories, and you know, it's just like all these chemical processes happen in our brains and our bodies uh, when we experience awe through art and nature. That's that's fantastic. Um way of seeing it and it's yeah it's really really interesting to hear you talking about it in that way and how that's um informed your your own art and what you want to explore and express and um how do you, I've, i love your personal work I, I think it's really fascinating i think one of the first times i saw it was when we were uh, at, i was at a cigarette and we, we met briefly at that mm-hmm. time um, your your art was um used a lot in the promotional material that year it was on lots of the screens and on lots of things right. in the auditorium um and i was i remember seeing it thinking wow wow i've never seen I've never seen anything like that and i wanted to i wanted to see more of it so it's, it's very cool to be talking with you now about um where that comes from and to be able to hear the the, the kind of reasoning behind it it's not necessary to have it to be able to enjoy it uh, i got that impression from it definitely it definitely made me feel that. It made me feel awe, and um, <clears throat> no, it didn't need that little placard next to it explaining what you're <laughs> supposed to be feeling. Right, so, right. Well done. You definitely, definitely achieved your your goal. Um, how, how do you go about? Um, I know that a lot of your your expression is um, with abstract forms that become creatures, and I, do you, do you have kind of like I'm wondering kind of how much design versus happy accident versus things that come from algorithms, like or whether it's just how you approach kind of a new piece. Yes, um, I really like. Uh, I came up with a uh, a phrase to describe it. Uh, I call it the hybridization of means. And so I, uh, you know, for a long time, I would experiment with something, and I would. You know, I experimented with fractals and I experimented with with uh, generative works and algorithmically produced things. And there was this kind of this amazing elegance to it. I loved uh, or even just pure mathematical uh, topology and stuff. You can make some just incredible things. But I always found it, it um, I, you know, it, it tends to make you want to 
approach it in a kind of a pure way. Like this is purely generative. This is purely algorithmic, purely mathematical. This is just a fractal. Um, but I found that to be very limiting. And, and the part of the thing, you could make incredible things, but um, they never had, uh, you could never distinguish it as being mine. And whether it's ego or whatever else, for me, an, an important aspect of, of, of art is, uh, is just self-expression of having a unique style or a, a thing that's it's uniquely yours. And so I was always trying to figure out how can I, you know, utilize these, these uh, incredible powers uh, and, and possibilities that uh, technology affords us and yet still uh, try to construct a kind of a look and a, and a style that reflects uh, my individuality or just is uniquely mine. And so uh, what I found was by um, not being pure about it, by being able to just go, okay, I'm going to, here's an interesting algorithm thing. This it created this thing and I like parts of it, but I don't like this part. And then I can, you know, go process it through a different thing or, or just, you know, turn it into a VDB and, you know, manually sculpt parts of it. Or like, I really like that approach of being able to work as, as um, procedurally or as manually as necessary. And that you can, you can kind of just, you know, throw some random numbers out there and see what you get and then go through a bunch of those, find something you find interesting and then go in and start tweaking the, the algorithm or the procedure a little bit to make it a little more what you want. And then down to, I'm going to go in there and just drag these points over because I don't like them where they are. And, right. uh, and then, so, but I think that hybridization is a, is a real important part of my work. It's kind of where I've settled. I've tried all these different things, but I really like, I've done a lot of work where, you know, computer graphics is incredible. If you have a vision, you can execute that vision. You can make it real. And so there have been, I do pieces occasionally like that, uh, where it's just like, I see it this way. I want it to be just like that. And you go in and do it. But, uh, and then there are ones where it's literally like, wow, I, I really didn't have much to do with this other than, you know, doing a bunch of iterations and picking the one I liked the best. Um, and so I think the combination is where I find uh, the most magical place. I love to be able to both discover and, um, and uh, you know, execute the work that I, you know, a vision it's right. It, it's so weird, though, how how much computer graphics and so many of these algorithmic things just resembled the visions I was having in my head long before I knew about computer graphics. I think there's something inherently, uh, you know, it, you know, it's math. It's you know, it's these things. It's the same way the brain works. So um, I think we are, you know, a lot of the visions as kind of mandalas and and phosphenes and various types of uh, geometric patterns and whatnot are, are um, really fundamental algorithms. Right, so you're, you're being inspired by them because of nature and then that's the beginning, the genesis of a piece and then you yeah. again and then you get to play with it a bit. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You look at a piece of cauliflower and there's even another one, it's kind of a weird, I forget what it's called, but it's so fractal. You'd swear it's oh, a the, mandible. Uh, 
the Romanesco, uh, yes, or the green one, yeah, the fractal. Yeah. Let's call it fractal polyglow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just so that's like really it cool. can't be. That's just a straight up fractal, man. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I always struggle to eat them. I just I don't want to. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, very cool. Um, so now now you're kind of in uh, in the last number of years anyway we've been working more and more in in real time mm-hmm. um how how has that affected the way that you kind of explore the the creation of the work as well as being able to i guess explore it once you've made it um has it also influenced the process of of making it itself absolutely i think any medium kind of uh it's important to allow it to influence the work and to and to try to uh, design work that's appropriate for that medium i know with 3d printing my sculptures that i made for 3d printing were really they were design problems how can i you know maximize this the potential of this medium uh you know and use the least material possible so it's inexpensive to produce you know all kinds of things um has to be able to stand up yeah it's got to be able to stand up it's got to be watertight all those things Uh, i think with real time the biggest thing for me was just um was so much about compromise in terms of poly counts and Mm. you know um just the resolution of things the amount of complexity i could have on screen at any one moment and as a consequence it's been great because Man, I have learned more about, uh, you know, optimizing topology than I I had no interest in that before at all. And uh, it's like now it's kind of like I, I'm kind of into it. I like it. It's like, man, look at that. That's right. only 25,000 polygons. You'd never, it looks like millions of polygons. You'd never know. And so, um, it's kind and, of satisfying of course, to be able to do Yeah, that. it is. It is. And, and especially with uh, the tools in Houdini. Uh, You know, it's just so effective to be able to make anything, anything you can imagine, and then to be able to, in short order, just, you know, turn that into a VDB and, you know, short up, get everything just right, and then, you know, put it back into polygons, super high res, all the detail built into a single watertight mesh uh, of triangles, and and then just, you know, down res it and um you know poly reduce it and you and it's like with all that they got, i got very good at using the the poly reduce tools and and being able to get it down and you get to where you kind of know like yeah no i'm going to need fifty thousand polygons for that one and uh oh right. this will be good i can do that in about five thousand polys and so um yeah i think that's the, been the biggest thing for me is that um which i kind of you know was loath to take on initially but um uh you know once i saw what you know i saw through a headset um on one of the modern ones it was like okay it's okay one i had one moment right i think in about 20 2013 something like that where i saw in a prototype oculus some people are working with um they were doing kind of a screensaver video game thing. And uh, I'd struggled and struggled trying to work with them, art directing and making stuff for them because 
was just they wanted to run on just on desktops without fancy graphics cards and really low pulse, super low poly, you know, really low res maps. And it just, no matter what we did, it just looked so crude. It just was heartbreaking for me. And, uh, and they got one of the very early prototypes of the Rift. And, uh, and then, yeah, I tried this out. And so I put it on and I saw the thing. And suddenly it was like, oh, wow, in VR, that's way less important. It's like, yeah, that's just four polygons and it's flat shaded, but, but it's there, right? It's mm-hmm. right here. I'm, I can touch it. It's, it's real. And so it, it kind of it did something. And I kind of went, okay, well, for VR, maybe I can. Anyway, and then, of course, with the high-end graphics cards, like you can do so much more. So, yeah, now now that's becoming less of a, an issue. It is poly count, and we're being able to explore some of those more high-res scenarios now. I'm I'm sure you're excited to to explore and experience yes. that without well, limitation. I've, I've, I've jumped through so many hoops, like with Onondala, my my latest VR world. Um, you know, I've got these all these creatures, and they're they're pretty high res. And so I can only really afford to have, and the world itself is super high res. So I can only afford to have, you know, three, four, you know, maybe if they're simpler, a dozen of these things on screen at once, but um, I have hundreds of them. And so, you know, they're kind of allocated to zones and whatnot, and you can only, you know, see a few of them at a time, which is fine. Uh, But it's, it's a lot of, that's a lot of, you know, a lot of work and trickery to go in and figure all that out and build systems so that they're, you know, they're only here, or if you go over here, they go away. And uh, turning things on and off is a, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of coding um, right. that is uh, really just a, a technical limitation. You know, it'd just be nice to be able to just like, okay, I'm just making stuff, and okay, now go in it, and and you don't have to worry. It's just the world is there, like the real world. It's just there all the time. Although there's no uh, there's no actual evidence that if you're not seeing something, it still exists. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to prove again. Mm-hmm. When I look That's out my window and I see, uh, you know, the mountains or whatever, there's no. I have no way to know if that's not just on a card. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, then maybe the people in you could call the people in the mountains and ask them. Yeah. And still, that's just their perspective. I'm pretty sure most of these people walking around out there are, are NPCs. Oh. <laughs> so, um, with your with the creatures that you make, do you have? Do they have? You, you name them, and they become. You have like a, a kind of almost a relationship with them. I'm guessing is yeah. You start to see characteristics in them that that kind of speak to you in some way. Yeah, they are um, they are creatures. They're they're uh, really. I was trying to rather than making you know NPCs or or sort of game AI. Um, I was more interested in kind of the um, I don't know the philosophical aspect of it. Like, well, what if it was really alive? And um, the other element of it is, for years, you know, I was into AI and artificial life and what I could do with it and you know, the go-to scenario for that is survival of the fittest and, uh, you know, 
predator prey relationships and you know eating and like you know this whole biosphere this whole ecosystem selection pressure from the environment and so on and um I just couldn't help over the years that reading other people's uh, critiques of artificial life and the, the dystopian scenarios and whatnot. Uh, thinking, I just don't want to be party to something that, uh, to creating something that suffers uh, or, you know, I just don't want to, you know, be like some laboratory where I'm creating things and then killing them. And it just, it has this kind of dark thing to it that I didn't want to, and I, I, I just kept thinking about it for years. And I finally, I came across when I was starting to make the creatures for Onondala, which initially were just going to be like NPCs. They're going to have some cool animation things on them and be automated, but be, you know, appear to be alive. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was trying to think, well, couldn't I make them a little more than that? Couldn't they be a little bit alive? So I was reading these papers on, um, um, behavior uh, in terms of, of cognitive neuroscience and and they 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 basically they break down the motivations for behavior in life uh, into two categories the intrinsic and the extrinsic and the extrinsic motivations uh, are when you you know you do something with a goal in mind you're gonna you know, you're going to build a house to get out of the rain or you're going to, you know, hunt and gather. So you got something to eat or, uh, you know, you're going to work this dead end job to, you know, pay the rent, whatever it is. We're, we're often very goal oriented. And those are the extrinsically motivated things where you do some behavior in order to enable some other reward or whatever. Whereas with intrinsic behaviors, uh, they are their own reward. They are done for their own sake and without uh, some other goal in mind. And I just thought it was so interesting the way they describe the examples of intrinsically motivated behaviors, which are play, creativity, art, music, dance, you know, all these things, social interaction, uh, scientific inquiry and discovery. And it was just across the board, it was like, uh, you know, curiosity, search for novelty, all these things. It's like, that's all I'm interested in. Those are, those are the noble qualities of life. All the other ones are, are just savagery. I'm going to make life that only has these, these intrinsically motivated behaviors. And so, and so that's, that's what I did. And they are, you know, they're self-determined. Their behavior is all self-determined. They, they are, um, aware of themselves they're self-aware they're aware of others um and they're they're able to interact and respond and 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 their behavior is all emergent like i none of it's pre-programmed or predetermined um that said they're very simple they don't they don't have a whole lot they can do but um they're very expressive and they're very creative and so they have their own language it's a, you know a real kind of a language and a, an emotive language and then they have uh they communicate through moving their their changing their shapes and their bodies kind of like a like an octopus can change its texture and its form and undulate and also their chromatophores so they can change the colors and and uh, textures on their surfaces um 
So, and they're, you know, that you can talk with them and they know when you're talking and they can respond and they're, they're polite. They won't interrupt you. Um, <laughs> anyway, I mean, sometimes they might. they might, I don't have complete control. I, I, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, they're engineered, so they have uh, a certain range of possibilities, but because there's enough parameters and there's enough range to them, and then because so much of that is determined randomly how those things interact, there's no way to really predict. And, you know, even after a few years now of, of hanging out with them and stuff, uh, they still surprise me. They still occasionally will do something like, well, I never would have thought that I'd see that happen. That's amazing. Is there anything with them that you, um, with working with them, particularly moving into real time, um, that you haven't explored with them yet that you, you would like to, uh, maybe more, more interactivity or anything visually or anything that you kind of, you're, you're keen to explore next? Uh, yeah, I think it would be fun to maybe focus on uh, making them a little more complex uh, in their in their behavior and in their ability to uh, maybe analyze uh, the person they're talking with, be able to um, maybe give them access to some kind of bio data, be able to know their pulse or their, you know, read their eye movements to know what they're thinking a little bit or just anticipate their emotional response. Um, also to maybe incorporate uh, the user's voice so that they could kind of do voice analysis and maybe develop some understanding there. Uh, but it is, I, what I found is in every other ambition uh, that I come up with, or at least a lot of them, I find, um, okay, well, that would be interesting, but it wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. In other words, when you're interacting with them, it's like what they already do all this stuff. And like that wouldn't add that much. That wouldn't add much that you'd know the difference or it becomes a slippery slope into, well, now you're introducing, you know, competition, conflict, survival, um, you know, even even forms of learning can be kind of risky because you can learn things badly. And um, so you have to be careful with that, you know, some of the early experiments, you know, it's, it's so apparent in humans, like this is why there's so much and in animals, there's so much dysfunction because there's great complex brains and, and learning machines and uh, it's hard unlearning things. And so if you find a pattern, um, you know, in neural networks, they call it uh, getting trapped in local minima. You know, if you consider the, the ball rolling down a fitness landscape and it gets caught in a little valley, it thinks, well, this is the best solution to the problem, but no, it actually, it's like, it's not a very good one. It's, it's just settled in a valley. So, um, yeah, but. Um, so the intrinsics is more, more appealing to you because it's not dealing with, with competing against something or, or taking too much input from the outside. It's just, expressing its its joy and yeah and you know in a sense it's a little bit of a reflection it's like it's such a philosophical idea that um wow to to ascend beyond savagery 
is going to require the loss of a lot of stuff. <laughs> We're going to have to unlearn a lot of things and, and ultimately become a lot simpler in a way. I, I don't know. It's, I think there's, you know, there are certainly other paths, but that's um, kind of what, what I've been finding with the creatures is that they're, they're in a sense, their simplicity is what makes them so powerful. Um, they're really great. Uh, they're very therapeutic. They're very healing. They're kind uh, and very unthreatening. And, um, and even though they might be physically kind of seem threatening, but when you get in there with them and hang out for a minute, like pretty soon you've hung out with a few now, it's like, they're just not threatening. And you might, you look at the pictures or a video and you might go, wow, that's kind of spooky. It looks, you know, kind of uh, Lovecraftian or something, you know, these kind of monstrous abstract sculptures that are wiggling around, but um, yeah. Well, definitely my experience of, of experiencing your work in, in VR um, and being able to kind of hover around and find moments in it, it was definitely one of, of wonder and curiosity and something um, that I hadn't seen before. It was making me think in some different ways. And, and I really, I wanted to be there longer than I expected. No, yeah. I really enjoyed being there for quite quite some time. Oh, thank you. That's cool. That's good to hear. Um, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd love for you to meet, you. Uh, meet the Blorts in Onondala and uh, get to know some of them. Um, they are, uh, they're, they're pretty fun and entertaining. Um, Definitely. Yeah, that sounds great. Where would, um, I mean, I'm certainly interested in that, of course. Where would, where would anybody be able to find um, examples of your work? Well, Onondala is going to be, it's an official selection of the uh, Venice International Film Festival, the uh, um, Venice Biennale. And, uh, and so yes. uh, it's going to be, thank you. And it's going to be in uh, 14 venues around the world uh, from the September 1st to the 19th. And then it will also be available on Viveport uh, during that time for uh, folks that are, I think, signed up for the the film festival, but I think it also will be available for anyone who has a, a Vive Infinity subscription or something. Um, but right, that's kind of what's going on now. And beyond that, I haven't really figured it out. I was kind of holding out, hoping I would uh, the museums would open up again and I could get it into some museum exhibits. And I'm still hopeful. We'll see what happens, but. I just found it's it's uh, because it's um, you know it, it it might seem to some people uh, you know on, at a glance to be a video game and and it's not and so uh, it's I I don't have great uh, hopes for it on Steam you know my previous piece uh, Blortasia I was on Steam and uh, you know for a for a weird abstract art piece, I think it did pretty well, but <clears throat> you know, the gamers, a lot of them just kind of just tore it to pieces because it's, it's not a game and they wanted a game. So uh, right. it's a, it's just not the market for virtual reality art. Uh, you know, the uh, hardcore gamer audience, but uh, hopefully that will change at some point in the future and we'll find, find a, a, a way to make it more accessible to people. 
you know, there's all these other venues. It's like, I'm, I'm always torn. It's like, well, do I, you know, maybe do I, I, you know, really dig in and try to make my way infiltrate the, the wealthy fine art world and sell it to some billionaire. And then nobody ever sees it except this rich guy. Or do I just, you know, forget about it and just find a way to get it to the most people. But even there it's, there's not that many people with headsets yet. So until we uh, yeah. solve that conundrum, um, you know, uh, folks will just have to come over, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, um, no, the game, games has definitely been the domain of, of gamers for a long time. But now that this technology is being used for, for other things such as filmmaking and, and art, in, for its own sake as well, um, Maybe maybe those platforms will have, start to have their own area where you can go expecting to experience that kind of stuff. Yeah, with the right expectation. Yeah, I think the museums seem to be on it, and uh, and if I think if they can just get to a place where they can open up safely, and uh, you know, the, having VR headsets introduces a whole other challenge with the. Uh, uh, you know, contamination and all of that, but also just from a standpoint of, of throughput, it's not a very good, uh, you know, it's not like a theater where you can yeah. move 500 people in there and then another 500 an hour later, you, you got, you know, one person per headset for however long they're in there. So it's not a, yeah. not a very, very efficient thing. And the best thing is just like, let's just get everybody a headset and a real fast computer. Just, just, ship one out to everybody in the world and um i send the bill to i don't know those rich guys <laughs> absolutely I'm, I'm definitely up for that well um yeah and maybe there's other uh, have you explored other formats like domes and that kind of thing where you can can have immersive with more people i guess it's a different thing it is. It's it's a very different thing. It, it's just not the same thing. They're they're cool, and I'm I'm kind of excited because I think one of my biggest problems with domes has been the uh, you know the bleed and the bounce. It just kind of gets kind of milky looking, and I, you know, I just kind of you know I'm a fidelity uh, snob. So yeah. um, well well earned. Yeah. And 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 to be fair, you know I I would love to do domes, and I've wanted to do them. For you know, since college, I was doing, trying to do dome things. Uh, and I've just never been able to make that happen. But um, uh, now I, I'm, I'm reading about these domes, these LED domes that don't yeah. have light spill problem and stuff. And that's pretty exciting. And I was yeah. talking to uh, my buddy, Eric Hansen, who uh, uh, does some, oh, has done some wonderful really dome work. And uh, he was saying he saw one of these uh, LED tubs and he said, it was kind of remarkable. You kind of don't miss the 3D. There's something about it that's just, it's not VR by any means, but it's really cool still and, uh, and certainly immersive. So um, I think that'd be kinda, really cool. I kind of felt the same way with ultra high resolution TV when I first saw that. It was like, it almost felt 3D just because yeah. the pixels have gone away. You know, oh, my God. The HDR on the TVs now, that changed everything. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was kind of a gimmick or something because, 
I had seen real HDR at SIGGRAPH like 15 years ago or something where they had a, you know, they had a, a whole room behind a little, a little screen to produce enough light to create the high dynamic range. They're just like massive air conditioners and bright sun, sun level bright lights, but it wasn't, it was like looking out a window and now it's like, wow, yeah, it's on my flat panel. It's pretty good. It's not quite as, you know, quite a high range as it was there at SIGGRAPH back when, but um, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal uh, leap, I think, in, in television technology. And also headsets are, are getting much cheaper and more accessible. And yeah, it's just, it's so frustrating because, uh, you know, clearly the Oculus Quest seems to be the way it's all going. You know, that's right. the one that's selling. Everybody's buying and it's the greatest thing in the world because it's affordable. You don't need a computer and there's no wires and it's easy to use. And God, how can you argue with it? But, um, oh, but it is just such a fraction of what you can do on a, a tethered headset on a real computer. And yep. so it's, it's yet again that like, oh, I've got to dumb it all down again, water it all down and make it. And I've always had this... Uh, this kind of thing, uh, as I said, I'm kind of a fidelity snob and partly just because my work is so much about complexity, but I've always had this analogy, which was like when I was doing stuff for low res real time things early on, it was like, if you take, this is one of the reasons I just didn't like it was you could take the greatest artist in the world and say, make a painting of a fish. And, and, or a model of a fish, whatever, make a fish. And they'll make you the most beautiful, nuanced, gorgeous image of a fish. And then you, you take a mediocre junior high school student and go, make, make a fish. And they make a fish and it's crude and kind of not very good. It's very mediocre. And now you go, okay, now uh, down resin both to, you know, cheesy video game resolution. They look they're the same. It basically it 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 takes everything and makes it look kind of just you know low res. It's like the low right. res can't carry the more sophisticated, nuanced um, um, information, and so everything winds up looking kind of like it was made by one kind of mediocre artist. And that's an extreme you know characterization that's not always true by any means. I marvel and envy the people who have are able to really master the low poly style and somehow make great art in spite of only using a handful of polygons. I don't, uh, for me, I, I don't know how they do it. I, I can't seem to do it very well. So I need lots of polygons, <laughs> but <laughs> well, it has you said, been your, done well. your, work ha your work has a lot of complexity in it. And that's sometimes there's some certain parts of that highly complex system. Yeah. You can't, you can't, down res you can yeah yeah and it does things it. and you can low poly things but so yes with complexity with geometric complexity yeah it's the, the low poly thing seems to homogenize things a lot it's just like yeah everything kind of has this look um and uh you know that goes along with the whole thing of wanting to have this individual unique looking thing like you, you said i i felt great that when you said it earlier you said like you saw my stuff at SIGGRAPH i was like wow i've never seen anything like that before and that for me is like that's the greatest thing because you know that that 
novelty is one of the key, uh, you know, triggers for, um, you know, for awe. And so that, wow, I've never seen anything like that. It does something in your brain where you, you're, you're forced into a state of presence where you're, you're really focused on right now in this moment. And, um, and that's, a, you know, a wonderful place to be. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, a tricky old world out there and being able to give people moments of that. And, uh, it is, it is medicine really yeah. being able mm-hmm. to achieve that, that calm state of awe and, and inspiration is a, it's, it's a gift. It's it, even when it's just for a moment, it, it, it really, there's a, something good about it. I think it helps people. And like I mentioned that accommodation thing that comes with, with awe, um, I have a theory. There's no, there's no studies, uh, you know, backing this or anything, but it's just my own theory, uh, or at least a hypothesis that um, when you go through that process of accommodation, where you have to sort of incorporate some new information into your model of of the of reality and your model of yourself, that. It, it can be more powerful than just the new information because I think a lot of people have uh, many things in their lives where they kind of, you know, it's occurred to them, man, I should be nicer to my, uh, to my brother or, uh, you know, I shouldn't be so, you know, uh, critical of my cousin or you know, whatever it is like, it's like, I should be, uh, you know, better. I should be a better person. And they have specific things where it's like, God, I really, I should quit drinking or, you know, whatever it is, these, these things where people know they need to do something, but they can't quite do it. And so a moment of awe, I think, where you have this, this process of accommodation is going to happen, whether you like it or not. I think it, it's going to pull in some of that stuff. It's like you might just you go to the Grand Canyon and suddenly you're like, should I need to be nicer to my brother? I'm going to do it. You know, like whatever it is, I think you would just it pulls in a lot of that accumulated stuff uh, or that uh, sort of goals for improvement. Um, anyway, that's my theory. Uh, a theory I buy fully and I've always felt that way about nature certainly thinks the master at that just yeah to make you feel that way and in, in grand and simple things like just a tree mm-hmm. on its own is enough to get, to make you feel that all yeah. the grand canyon which is grand literally yeah it's so funny we my wife and i were you know we're both artists and we'll go to amazing places and with with people or family and whatever and um and, and then we go through our vacation photos and it's like, here's a, a bunch of little rocks on the ground and here's, here's a, rusty, a rusty side of a building. Here's the paint, peeling paint on a sign. Here's a, a weird looking stain on the, on the asphalt. Like we, we're just so much more about the textures and the beauty in, in, the, in nature, you know, or you like, here's you know, 600 pictures of the sky what, did you take any pictures of your kids? Oh, 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 oh there's it. We've got this one. This one was, we went to dinner one night. I got this one. Yeah. 
terrible. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. I was looking through my camera roll and the same thing. Bits of tree bark and none of the kids. Yeah. Maybe bits of the kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I think that's the, the thing being, being an artist and being curious, you're always seeing that all the time and right. being novelty. inspired by it. It's the yeah. novelty it gets us. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how it's always, it's always there. You don't yeah. have to do some, do anything particularly complicated to go and experience it. I used to but, have a, when we would go, um, you know, a lot of times working in visual effects as a supervisor, you're going on scouts and you go into things and it's just a lot of standing around and waiting around and driving around. And, um, I have a, a really low tolerance for boredom. Um, but, and I all, but I also view it as unnecessary. And so I would always have these little solutions. If we had to go somewhere and we're waiting and it's boring, I always carried a little pocket microscope and it's just a, you know, a little like, you know, 10 power or something. But, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, we'd be waiting around and they'd come to get me or whatever. And they'd find me looking at a wall, like with a magnifying <laughs> through a microscope or down on the floor, looking at the carpet, like, God, look at that. It looks like a jungle. <laughs> uh, it's there. Yeah. You just, you know, it's there. Kept me inspired. Kept me, kept me coming back. If I just, you know, sat there, I don't think I could have handled it. I'd have freaked out and, started yelling at people or something. <laughs> what are you doing? Why are we here? Come on. <laughs> we're going to talk about this or not. Well, that definitely doesn't sound like you. So the other <laughs> solution makes much more sense. Um, <laughs> speaking of, of the Oregon, we had a, a question come in. Um, whether you have any, any other um, experiences that you've seen that you've enjoyed recently, any kind of, cool VR stuff that you've noticed along the way, other than your own, obviously. Uh, nope, mine, that's it. It's the only thing out there. <laughs> it's the only one. <laughs> it's the only one. Um, well, it, it's actually hard because I'm not I'm not big on games, you know? I just, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I respect it. My kids are big gamers. I, you know, I like watching them, you know, enjoy it and stuff. And and I've I've done it. I you know I've, I've played some games. I kind of enjoy the ra the driving, you know. Like I just like driving around and a thing. If there's goals, as soon as there's goals and puzzles to solve, I I kind of lose interest. It just feels like work. It's like I feel like I should be paid for this. This is just work. But um, I I'm I think I'm I'm uh, odd in that way. So um, so it's hard because almost everything out there is games. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the 360 video stuff, the more narrative things, uh, I, I just kind of not that interested in that uh, either. Uh, with the art stuff, I've seen a few things. Um, there, there's, um, uh, you know, most of the stuff was a while back because it's, uh, you know, we, we don't get to go to these VR expos anymore, but right. um, we meet people and see their work. But um, the Museum of Other Realities... Uh, is on Steam, and uh, they have events in there. They've they've hosted cans and you know all these VR festivals and shows and whatnot. And they have a, a, a sizable uh, kind of permanent collection exhibit of VR art. 
um, you know, a lot of the cool tilt brush scenes and stuff, but also really kind of fancier Unity uh, uh, developed uh, things. I have a, a big space in there, a big installation called Devalea Rupanam, um, which I'm very proud of. And I think it's a real cool place to go and visit. It's a popular destination for their visitors. Uh, and so I really recommend that. Um, it's so cool because it's social VR. You can go there, you can meet people there. Um, and they do have events uh, periodically where you can go and, and meet new people. Um, and But if you have friends, you can go there and hang out in VR without having to uh, leave your, uh, your VR station. So I love that. And also uh, because I, I got a Valve Index uh, early on, uh, they, they gave me uh, Half-Life Alex, which um, I was just curious, wanted to see, well, what, what could they come up with, you know? And, um, you know, it's, it's really amazing. It's, it is uh, so cool to see what a, a AAA thing done uh, for VR can, can be. And uh, it's a, a stunning achievement, I think. Uh, it was just amazing. I haven't played the whole thing. I you know, played for a couple of hours and, and uh, occasionally I'll get, you know, go like, I want to go in there and check that out again, play a little further along. Um, but I tend to get, you know, stuck at a puzzle and just like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to have to work for anybody. But I love the thing that's got a glove you can grab things with. And, and, um, and uh, I am loath to admit because I'm so anti uh, violence and conflict and everything. But, uh, you know, shooting things in VR is just a blast, shooting monsters and stuff. And I, that's one of the reasons I, I, I think another reason I maybe stay away from it. I, like I have this kind of um, one track mind, kind of an immersive personality. I don't know what you call it, but um, when I get in there, I'm kind of all in, like I'm there. I, I, it's like, I kind of forget that I'm not, that I'm playing a game or that it's like not real or something. And so, uh, you know, my wife and my daughter thought it was hysterical that I'm in there like, oh, great. Another one of these fucking guys. And <laughs> like, so like, like, who are you? Like, that is, not, it's, it kind of scared me. So, uh, yeah, but, oh boy, it's beautiful. It's just stunning. I felt very similar with games and I think I, I left it at uh, Quake 2. That was when I stopped playing and, and it was a, a, a night where I had to sit there and complete the game. And I think it was up till six in the morning. So I just didn't know that much time had passed and I was just I was so into it. I, I, I didn't give up games because I didn't like them. I think I kind of gave them up because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't control the amount of use of them. That, you know, that might be my thing too, because I remember, you know, I got into computers very early before people really had them at home very much. It was kind of a, an oddity to have one. And I remember with the Amiga, there was a game, it was very popular called, uh, it's kind of famous, uh, Another World, I think it was called. And I got really into that. And I think I might have gone without sleep for a couple of days and nights uh, trying to get through that. And, um, you know, it kind of freaked out my family and it freaked me out. And after that, I kind of went, yeah. I don't. And then afterwards, when I got finally I beat, I was like, ah, I won. I did it. I 
played through and did it. And, and then it was kind of like, and what do I have to show for it? I, right. <laughs> I, mean, I need to sleep. I can't, I'm useless. I'm just like, my health is suffering. I haven't eaten or slept. And, and it kind of put me off to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I uh, had a similar experience. I think it's, uh, it's, it's incredible to me that it's kind of come full circle. Now I, I wanted an Amigo when I was a kid, we ended up with a, an Amstrad PC, which wasn't capable as much as, as the Amiga of doing graphics. And I had to kind of, but it still could. I could still move pixels around in a very crude right. way. That, that kind of gave me that that spark originally. But um, it's amazing, amazing where it's come to today. I think that that there's so much power available to an individual now to be able to create and express the things that you know, like like you mentioned in, in the beginning of of my career, or at least when I was at university, and it was all SGI machines. You couldn't, yeah, you couldn't play with Maya unless you had 20 grand for a license and then 100 grand for a machine and that's right nobody could do it nobody could do it but now right kind of anyone can do it yeah yeah also um you know when I was learning computer graphics there were no there was no documentation for anything there were no courses there were no tutorials there was no internet and even right. like books were obscure and there were no books. They were always out of date. Like you couldn't get a book on computer graphics in the early days of computer graphics. The only way you learned it back then was through what they called the priesthood, which were people who were in it and, yeah. you know, had gone to school for uh, uh, computer science and had, you know, written the software and everything. So uh, yeah, it was a hard thing to to learn back then. And you just had to, bang your head against it and try things and experiment and read whatever cryptic documentation there was for the software. Um, I, I made some, some good friends and, and also um, made their lives a, rather busy who worked in uh, tech support uh, at the early, in the early days of the Amiga. I met one of my best friends because I, I just, I wound up calling there all the time to get tech support on the Amiga or whatever. Uh, and it was, it was just the weirdest thing because uh, he became tech support at side effects and, and it was the same guy and I couldn't figure it out. It's like, I was, you know, I'd finally moved on. I was like working on an SGI, working on prisms, which became Houdini right. and uh, I'm called up and it's like, wait a minute, what's going on? I know your voice. You're the Amiga guys. It's just, do you answer all the tech calls for all the computers and software? <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh yeah yeah it's it's uh so it's many still... resources now like god just like your yeah. thing yeah. and like anything you want to just google it oh here's how you do this here's how you do that here's a really great you know tutorial on that thing and so yeah amazing and the tools are just unbelievable I, i've been uh playing with uh substance painter and mm. and substance uh, recently and um you know i i i've tried to mostly steer clear of anything using a uv workflow um because right. i have you know weird tricks for avoiding it and my stuff is weird so it doesn't you know it's not necessary mostly but uh for a whole series i just finished of ancient artifacts from the distant future um, I kind of needed, you know, realistic texturing and stuff. So I had to 
make real UVs and go in and make maps and stuff. And it was just phenomenal. I couldn't believe it, man, that stuff, you know, I was a texture painter back in the early nineties and it was a little different, different thing back then. Right. Yeah. People uh, take it for granted. The fact that you don't have to abstract into 2d <clears throat> paint things and then see what it looks like. Oh no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so nice being able to, to be interactive with it. Well, also all the procedural tools, just being able to have a lot of that stuff, the dirt, the aging, the, you know, putting things in the cracks and the concavities and the, the ridges of wearing, you know, edge wear and all that stuff being so simple where we had to just hand paint all that. Like, right. And, uh, yeah. When, and uh, now also the, bits of machine learning starting to come come into play and be able to enhance the workflow with that with that as well fill in details that you wouldn't maybe even have time for or right the ability for yeah yeah that seems to be creeping into a lot of a lot of tools these days we're well on our way to being heads in jars just watching our brains <laughs> entertain us <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely well, Kevin, thank you so much for for being here today and joining us. And um, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Um, thank you for taking us on a a magical ride uh, through your your career and your you know artistic self and your process and you know, what inspires you and how you think is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I really appreciate it.